Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Start podcasting, man. And the only thing I was really looking for was just, you know, support for my friends and my family and my new followers. But nobody, nobody. Did you know every time that you don't rate and subscribe to a bro history podcast, a Marxist intellectual is reincarnated into an American child? Only what I really wanted was a review, man. Like, just so like I know I'm doing a good job. Just like, why couldn't they rate it? Why couldn't they just give it a five-star rating in the app store, man? I just don't get it. Rate and review a bro history podcast. It can save a life. everyone welcome to another episode of bro history it's henry zamoda and danny abdeljabar what's up brother chilling man as per what's up brother (laughs) you pumped you getting stoked you're about to this is the last time we're recording as a uh as a free man right well if all goes according to plan by the time this is released which will be next week because we're recording this a week in advance i'm getting married on Saturday, so That's right. this should be coming out the following Monday, which make it the twenty fifth. I'm getting married on the twenty third, so if everything goes according to plan, I'm married now. <laughs> Mazel Tov, maybe. <laughs> yeah, Mazel Tov. So, I mean, hopefully that's the case next by the time this releases and nothing yeah. goes horribly wrong. But yeah. uh, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling pretty good that we're gonna. We're gonna uh, accomplish the deal. What we need to accomplish. We're gonna close the deal. (laughs) That she'll be stuck with me forever. (laughs) So this is when we can really start making bro history really spicy, right? Because you know, and for better or for worse. (laughs) Oh no! This is when I have to like completely water down my my content because now I have a lot more to lose. (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Yeah. Well, what a better way to no uh, cussing anymore. No cussing, no controversial takes, no. Uh, I mean, when Allison actually listens to this show, she's sometimes horrified. But um, it's uh, it's the few the few samples that she actually gets, she'll she can she'll, she could be horrified. Um, but we're not getting married because of our mutual interest for podcast. Her favorite show is this show called uh, Crime Junkie, oh, which yeah. my girlfriend, which is too. which is like. Every chick's favorite show is always about serial murder. Should we should we branch off and like make a like a like a bro history, but for like serial murderers? This way we can capture more women. Is that like a thing we should do? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a very saturated market. There's a lot of serial killer podcasts. You know, the one that really, I feel like, opened it up, and I think this kind of, this may have been the first podcast I really listened to, and I was like, oh, wow, podcasting's a thing. Serial. Mm-hmm. Did you listen to Serial? I listened to a few episodes. I, I didn't, yeah. It didn't catch me the way it caught a lot of other people. Yeah, I was I was pretty interested in the in the first season. The second season, I didn't really like that much. But the first season, I thought was really interesting. Um, and that just opened the door up for like a lot of crime, true crime type shows. But now there's so many of them. The other one I liked was Dirty John. They made a show that off one. that. I didn't listen to that one, but uh, but yeah, pre- I've heard of it. The, yeah, the premise is it's a guy who is uh, a complete nutbag. And he's uh, a woman meets this guy online, and he ends up being just crazy. But that sounds like the plot to like every true crime podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you got a formula, you know. Keep on works. going with it. All right, so we're going to be talking about the uh, serial murder of. Uh, no, we're not talking about that. Maybe we should though. That's interesting. I've always wanted to kind of. I've always had an interest of diving a little bit into like criminal conspiracies, but the criminal conspiracies that I'm interested in are more so like related to like government historical points, yeah. historical <laughs> points or government or mafia, like mafia stuff I find very interesting, especially when like mafia CIA connections, that stuff is super mm-hmm. interesting. Leave us but a review gonna... uh, if you want us to cover true crime with a bro history spin (laughs) yeah actually we had ideas to do some stuff like that but all right yeah let us know if you wanted to do that but we're going to talk about the spanish-american war today we did an episode a couple weeks ago on like the origins of the spanish-american war and i we i mean there's more information so I'm not sure if this is going to be a series or not, but this is kind of a part two type thing, but not really. It can stand alone on its own thing, or at least that's the plan because we're going to give a quick recap. But we're going to try to pick off where we left off with the origins of uh, the Spanish-American War. We mainly talked about U.S. policy in Cuba, uh, towards Cuba, along with the origins of the of uh, you know Spanish imperialism, as well as the crumbling of the spanish empire uh, in the caribbean but uh why don't you kick us off because you kind of led the research on this where should we where should we we begin yeah maybe in, in an effort to to make this kind of more standalone i can give a really brief recap of what we talked about in the last episode because i think it's also still super important context to understand how the war happened and what happened during the war and of course its aftermath um but if you want a lot more detail go and listen to that episode Um, So we talked a lot about Spanish history in the last one. Um, So to recap that, in the early 1800s, Spain was aligned with, you know, Napoleonic France and invaded Portugal, only to later be double-crossed by France and get invaded themselves. Uh, At the time, there was a king. His name was Ferdinand IV. He gets deposed, and the Spanish develop a military junta, uh, which is where we learned the word from, uh, against their, you know, the occupiers, the French occupiers. And they did a bloody guerrilla war. Um, and then at this juncture, all of these former Spanish colonies take the opportunity uh, that you know, the king had been deposed to basically you know, vie for independence. And they start developing uh, liberal ideologies and nationalism and all the things that come along with that. 
later on, uh, after you know taking back Spain, uh, King Ferdinand IV is back and he gets reinstalled as the king under what was called a popular sovereignty, which was kind of like a democratic monarchy. Uh, but that goes out the window pretty quickly because he does a coup and he brings back absolute monarchy. That doesn't sit super well with the Spanish army, who then revolts, deposes King Ferdinand IV, uh, but they don't want to relinquish control over the colonies, even though they got rid of monarchy. So several independence wars break out in Latin America uh, until all but Puerto Rico and Cuba remain as colonies. And later in the mid-1800s, there were three civil wars that break out in Spain, which further eroded like Spanish hegemony and, and the Spanish empire. And so all of this is to say in less than 100 years, Spain had seen several major wars, the fall of monarchy, the development of nationalism, a bunch of coups, a resurgence of monarchy, a loss of most of its colonies, and several civil wars. So all these factors put together basically cripple the Spanish Empire, and it made losing the Spanish-American War pretty much inevitable. So that was the 30-second version of, uh, you know, the Spanish history section. Um yeah. Yeah, long story short, Spanish, the Spanish Empire was falling apart while the American Empire was essentially in its, well, the overseas American Empire was in its genesis right here. So right. that's, it was just starting. So you have a declining power and then you have a rising power in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So speaking of the, that rising power, we also talked about the American history bit of it, and I'll fly through that as well. So uh, around the same time period, so 1799-ish, you know, when Napoleon took power, uh, the U.S. was basically super new, a super young nation. I think they were they were on their second uh, uh, president at the time, and they were in this awkward phase of, of trying to end this undeclared war relationship that they had with France. Uh, at the same time, of course, as I noted before, Spain and France were allies, and Spain actually controlled the Louisiana Territory and eventually gives it back to France, which caused some tensions with the U.S. Uh, because they were afraid that Napoleon would, you know, try and control the Mississippi and, like, the Gulf of Mexico, which is obviously very strategically important for the new nation. Um, the U.S. goes ahead and sends some envoys over to France to work out a deal, uh, and for a number of reasons, including France's inability to hang up you know, hang on to, I should say, Haiti, uh, who was undergoing their own set of revolutions, as well as, you know, their focus on on an upcoming war with Britain. Uh, France basically sells the U.S. the Louisiana Purchase for a bargain price. It was just $15 million in then money or $323 million adjusted for inflation today, which we go into great length of discussing how crazy of a deal that is. Uh, listen to that show if you want to hear more. But basically, after getting the Louisiana Purchase, the U.S. was largely isolationist, um, but the war between Britain and France start to spill over to the U.S. eventually. And I'm going to skip important details here, but it eventually leads to the U.S. to go to war with um, Britain uh, during the War of 1812. Uh, and I think the combined experience of the early 1800s starts to form you know, the U.S.'s uh, uh, way about thinking about its sphere of influence. Uh, in the Western Hemisphere. And President Monroe outlines a new strategy for the U.S. that is later known as the Monroe Doctrine. The idea was super simple. New world is new world. Old world is old world. Everybody's happy, right? Um, but while the Monroe Doctrine saw, you know, European meddling in, in, you know, the new sovereign nations of the Western Hemisphere as a threat, it also 
very notably respected the status of the existing European colonies, colonies like Cuba. And I think there was a lot of reasons why uh, there was the Cuban exemption here, but I think the, the biggest point was that it was generally understood that Cuba would eventually join the U.S. sphere of influence one way or another, uh, whether on its own or, you know, by purchase or, I don't know, potentially by force. And, you know, the, the by force and by purchase one was pushed a lot by a lot of Southern politicians um, in the U.S. Uh, where they made an attempt to buy Cuba for $100 million or take it by force, um, which obviously went directly against the Monroe Doctrine. And, and it was pretty widely disparaged by a lot of the Northern states and, and most of Europe, if not all of it. Um, but the Cuba question takes a back seat pretty quickly because guess what? North and South tensions begin to rise. And seven years later, there's a U.S. Civil War in 1861. Uh, so that has the U.S. a bit preoccupied at the moment. They're not really thinking about their sphere of influence anymore. They're just thinking about whether or not they'll still be a country, uh, or at least one unitary country, that is. So after both civil wars, the U.S. Businesses, U.S. businessmen um, start to monopolize on the devalued sugar markets. Uh, while Spain was politically ruling Cuba, the, the U.S. economy economically ruled it, and I'm, I'm not being... Um, you know, exaggerating here that they literally controlled all of the exports, but we'll talk more about that later. Um, a strong business interest in creating the Panama Canal also popped up around the same time, which gave a rise to a military interest in protecting that project as well as others, uh, which led the U.S. to completely revamp their Navy uh, with new steel warships. And as a side effect of that and their military expansion, a bunch of plans were drawn up in advance for a war, a potential war against Spain over Cuba. And that's where we left off. <laughs> yeah. So now there's a couple of themes going on in the U.S. at this time. And um, I think one of the most important things to to look at is the closing of the frontier. So by 1890, there was really no land to really conquer anymore in continental and, and the land-based U.S. states. Like, you know, Manifest Destiny has reached its natural conclusion. The U.S. was, uh, you know, settled from, from New York to California, and there was just no more frontier to really conquer. There was no more Indians to, to uh, you know, force into reservations and things like that. So, I mean, the U.S. was kind of at peace. And... At this time, a lot of people are also moving into urban areas. So there's this belief among people like Teddy Roosevelt, for, for example, that American masculinity was under threat. Like, why do you think a guy like Teddy Roosevelt made these, uh, these weird pilgrimages to Western ranches? You know, his, his kind of demeanor and his persona was kind of... Uh, it was borrowed from like these front these rugged men from the from the west like he kind of idolized the cowboys like that's you know the romanticism of the western frontier was like at its peak with like the you know these these uh these uh western show these western road shows and things like that mm -hmm. so um here's a quote from historian jackson lears imperialists deployed a mystical language of evolutionary progress, celebrating the renewal of masculine will 
and equating it with personal regeneration. So there, there's this just kind of weird, I'm trying to think of a, a way to describe at least how I perceive the U.S. at this time, or at least a, a lot of the sentiment that was driving the policy. Toxic of masculinity? Course, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Hyper-masculinity? I don't know. I kind of like that word. I think it's, it could be used to describe a lot of things. However, there's a geopolitical aspect, which we spoke about more last episode, where you know Cuba is a pretty important place for American interest. It's just this huge island that is uh, it, it kind of looks like it should be part of the United States. And the United States, uh, as a government in, in a game of big power politics, the last thing the U.S. wanted to do was give up Cuba to a real threat to them, such as France, such as the British Empire. There was almost a, uh, they were always c- content on letting the Spanish Empire rule Cuba because the Spanish Empire was weak and it wasn't really a threat to the United States. But let's just say if they crumbled and then, you know, France or Britain were the inheritors of the island, and then that's actually a national security uh, risk for them. But putting that all aside, besides the national security, there is this nationalization project that's going on at this point. Um, Like, how do you kind of solidify yourself as a nation and one of the best ways to do that is with a war and you know there had been peace since i mean relative peace since 1865 i don't want to you know uh, overlook the indian wars because they were violent however there wasn't like a large-scale war or large-scale mobilization since the civil war and a lot of these younger the, the younger generation they looked up the civil war veterans so um, and, and also add this, add to this that you know less Americans were doing backbreaking work, you know, you know, with with the technological advances that were made during the Industrial Revolution. So there becomes this fear that like you know men are becoming wussies, that we're getting we're becoming a soft society, at least in the eyes of people like you know Teddy Teddy Roosevelt. And, um, you know, there's this kind of expansionist anxiety that is getting ready to burst. And, um, you know, our, our friend uh, Danny Sherson, who's, who's um, you know, who was a history professor at, uh, at West Point, you know, he has this, like, great series on American history he wrote for, for uh, Truth Dig, and, and then he also adopted it into, he adopted it into a book as well. And it's uh, here. I'm going to quote him right here. As of as early as 1895, Theodore Roosevelt, the poster boy for masculine self-consciousness, declared that he should welcome almost any war for I think this country needs one because many women, such as the framed social activist Jane Adams, were or would soon be dissenting anti-imperialist. The expansionists depicted their opponents as lacking what Roosevelt declared the essential manliness of the American character. Another uh, quote from Roosevelt, a, uh, a good deal disheartened at the queer lack of imperial instinct our people show. It would seem we have lost or wholly lack the masterful impulse which alone can make a race great. 
So there's also kind of this weird racial thing with with uh, with Teddy Roosevelt. When you look into like some of the things that he wrote in his letter, like he was a you know a pretty firm believer of eugenics. Uh, so like a lot of people at that time were believers in eugenics and, and master races and uh, you know things that at, at, in today's time you know we we would be mortified of. But you know this is that time like white man's burden time and the United States did adopt a lot of that like oh especially when you see like the imperial uh escapades in like the philippines after the war the i mean that was that was uh inside america the american intelligence class or not the intelligence class the uh the academic class or the elite class those were ideas that were swarming swarming in those in those circles uh you know these weird race ideas like social Darwinism and things like that. So there is that aspect. And then the the other thing, like I, I had mentioned, like a nationalization project. You have to remember that this is still the time of healing from the Civil War. So the Spanish-American War also served the purpose of healing that division that was created during the Civil War. So, you know, the press... And we're going to get into the press would highlight and you know focus on or 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 um, you know write about you know older former Union and Confederate veterans who were serving together. There's this funny antidote about um, a former Confederate general uh, Joseph Fighting Joe Wheeler. He you know he led a charge and. You know, allegedly he forgot who he was fighting and he started, uh, you know, rallying like, let's go, boys. We got those Yankees on the run. So you get these <laughs> weird stories about that as well. It, it's it's interesting. But now just kind of packing all that together and just, you know, what's going on in American culture life. Meanwhile, you have this romantic story about Cuban rebels seeking independence and, you know, this story that. I think Americans today they they always kind of adopt and and they uh, take hook line and sinker. You know, oh, we need to help those those uh, disenfranchised people in another country, and that's where you know we, you know, the press and um, the kind of elite class in the United States uh, romanticizes this and. Um, really portray the Spanish as being brutal, in which they were. I mean, they, the Spanish were brutal, but the Cuban rebels were pretty brutal, too. It was, a, it was right. a pretty vicious revolution. It was brutal in general, right? Before we talk about Cuban history, I just want to make a comment on, on you know, this whole Teddy Roosevelt, like, machismo thing. It kind of feels, like, eerily reminiscent to, like, how the boomers talk about millennials, you know? Like, yeah. Like, oh, these, these millennials, they don't know the value of a good hard day's worth of work right and uh they're all wussies right and uh, what better than <laughs> a war <laughs> to to whip them all into shape i don't know it, it feels that way I don't, what do you think? i mean every it, you can find this story again and again and again throughout history you can find this in the roman empire you could find this with like every older generation who's scared that they lack the virtues of their predecessors, um, mm-hmm. especially a guy like Teddy Roosevelt, who was a rich boy. 
Mm-hmm. There's always this fear that the younger generation is not going to understand the value of like hard work or or uh, nationalism or or you know all these things that you know make a um, nation stand out. And you know what better way to do that than than war? So you always see like there you know there's a fear that the that your younger population has never gone through real hardship i mean it's 18 it's the 1800s there's plenty of hardship to go <laughs> yeah. to go around however sure. you know not the same intensity as the hardships in the in the civil war you, you ever see game of thrones where robert mm-hmm. baratheon is talking to cersei lannister and you know i i know i use a lot of game of thrones references but it is what it is i think there's a, there's good ref, there's good analogies where he's talking to cersei he's like we haven't fought a good war in years. The <laughs> yeah. Dothraki horde, one army. And he's talking about how, you know, they're not ready to fight the Dothrakis because they're unbattle tested and, you know, it's been a they're weak soft. society. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just kind of pulling through that common story, that common fear that your future generations are not going to be as. Uh, as tested and as virtuous as the previous ones. Right. Well, it certainly, I don't think, was the case for the Cubans because, uh, you know, the Cubans were definitely <laughs> battle-hardened for a long time. And maybe that's a, a good segue to kind of recap a little bit of that Cuban history uh, flavor for this particular episode. And, and and I'll keep this part really short, but, you know, Cuba was a part of Spain for something like 400 years, you know, uh, leading up to the Spanish-American War. It's got a really long history uh, with Spain. And during the period of Napoleonic rule, these various juntas that we talked about a moment ago that sprung up in Latin America, including the ones uh, that sprung up in Cuba, they started getting this taste of sovereignty and they developed nationalism. Um, But ultimately, they, they end up supporting Ferdinand and his return to power, which, of course, backfired uh, and became the first of many, many Spanish backstabs to Cuba. You're going to start to see a pattern as I talk about this. You know, later, after the Spanish army took back power, we see a second backstab, right? So I talked about this before. They did not want to relinquish control over Cuba or their other colonies because, you know, like many colonists will say they were they were good colonists, right? Um, they they end up losing basically all of their Latin American colonies, except for Cuba and Puerto Rico for this reason. Um, and Spain, uh, f- for better or for worse, made some half-assed attempts to placate the remaining territories that they did have with some reforms, including a very poorly enforced slave trade ban. And Cuba was at the same time suffering under heavy taxation, which did not get reinvested back into Cuba. A lot of businesses ended up failing during this time, and especially in those sugar industries, which would later get scooped up by uh, American business interests. Now, military tribunals became commonplace. Political opposition in the press was silenced. I think this, you know, par for the course for, you know, colonialism here. But by 1865, the Cuban native elites, they end up revolting, right? And they make four specific demands to Spain. 
One of them was tariff reform, uh, Cuban representation in the Spanish parliament, uh, judicial equality with Spaniards, and full enforcement of the slave trade ban. And no surprise, they didn't get it. And that started a war in 1868 called the Ten Years' War. Uh, and it was a bloody, brutal war. And then later, the Spanish, they, they go basically full extermination mode on Cuba. And a lot of very real atrocities were committed on the Cuban people. Um, and that war ends with a pact called the Pact of San, San Juan, which the rebels end up begrudgingly signing. And they trust, okay, like, fine, we'll play ball, but we want some changes. But that piece was super short-lived. An another minor war got kicked off just a few years later called the Little War. Uh, and, you know, and that one ended again with some more empty Spanish promises of reforms. So just backstab after backstab after backstab. And, you know, these people, the Cuban people are already, you know, very battle-hardened, right? They've, they've been fighting several attempted wars of independence, uh, just not, just falling short thereof. And, you know, when you're looking at the histories of Spain, the U.S., and Cuba, I think it gives a lot of really important context to the Spanish-American War. The Spanish-American War is is a really complicated story about many things, uh, and we've described a bunch of them already. You know, the death of Spanish colonialism is a big one. It's also the story of the rise of nationalism in Latin America, and in particularly Cuba. It was also a story about the development of the U.S. empire and its sphere of influence in the Western Hemisphere. It also can be told as a story of the role of capitalism and the media in geopolitics, among many, many other things. And, you know, here we see one empire in collapse and one empire on the rise and one small nation who just wants to do their own thing that gets caught up in the middle of it. So in the 17 years since the end of the last war that the Cubans fought against Spain, the Little War, there were some pretty radical reforms that they enacted, but it just didn't end up being enough to satisfy the Cubans. These half measures by the Spanish were meant to quell the many uprisings in Cuba, um, but they also had the unintended consequences of creating the conditions for a future revolution. In particular, I want to talk about the abolition of slavery, which was a really big desire by the Cuban people. At the time, you know, there was a lot, you know, as you pointed out, there's a lot of advances in a lot of things up to and including agriculture. And slavery was seen as almost unnecessary uh, and kind of expensive uh, in a lot of ways. And so they just wanted to get rid of it. Even the, the, some of the slave owners were in favor of this. But the unintended consequence of abolishing slavery in 1866 was that, you know, there were a lot of slaves who were now free to farm and work for a wage and compete against every other uh, Cuban for the same jobs. And while there was that appetite in Cuba to abolish slavery, again, even among some of the wealthier slave owners, I think what this ended up having is economic impacts that the Cuban economy wasn't really ready to deal with. And a big reason why they weren't ready to deal with that is that the Spanish were still bleeding the island dry with taxation and tariffs. 
And they didn't take that money and reinvest it back into the Cuban economy. So this just created a lot of conditions to, to it's like they gave them what they wanted, but it, they, they fucked it up even further. And this major increase in free workers coupled with, you know, heavy taxation and little economic investment in Cuba resulted in the collapse of a lot of businesses in Cuba. Some breaking news. There was a man who was trying to cross the U.S.-Canada border. This was recent. And he was caught with snakes in his pants. He was trying to smuggle pythons from Canada into the United States. Pretty crazy story. And I'll leave you to create your own jokes about that. But uh, we have some other breaking news as well. And that's Harry's Razors. So Harry's Razors... They're carving their own path in grooming to give you a better designed and better value grooming products. Harry saw customers getting ripped off by questionable shaving products. So they came up with their own way to make beautifully designed razors without the ridiculous prices the big brands charge. Guys, I recently hit second puberty. Guys who are in their mid-30s will know what I'm talking about. And I have to shave every single day now. So um, I was using these very crappy razors and they would get dull right away. And often I would end up using my wife's razors because my razors would get dull, which is bad for everyone. Well, hairy shaving products have changed things for me. So it's a really great quality shave. I never cut my face and uh, my face feels nice and smooth. Also, their shaving cream smells really good. I really feel like a new man whenever I use my Harry's razors. These razors are some of the best out there. They're for an awesome price as well. They're German engineer blades made in their own factory that stay sharp longer. There are customizable delivery options for scheduled refills as low as $2. That's half is what you pay for other big brands. That's a really good price, guys. And uh, you have to go with this, the uh, subscription. So I use the subscription because it prevents me from having to go to my local pharmacy and then ask a person to help me because the razor is often behind some type of security plexiglass. Harry's razors are awesome. I love them. They're the best shave at the best price. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash brohistory. That's harrys.com slash brohistory for a $3 trial set. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. That economic collapse provided an opportunity for the U.S. businesses. And this is where that story of capitalism in geopolitics comes into play. Um, they end up dominating the Cuban economy. Uh, again, in particular, that sugar industry. They, they make up an overwhelming percentage of the island's exports and imports. And so when you think about capitalism's role in geopolitics, you really got to think about like what makes the most money. And in particular, if you've invested a lot of uh, money into Cuba at this time, scooping up their sugar businesses, you're making a killing, a profit on the status quo. And revolutions 
are really bad for business because it interrupts the money that you're making at the time. So from the U.S. business perspective or from the capitalist perspective, there's this desire to keep up the status quo by lobbying the U.S. not to get involved. On the other hand, though, Spanish rule of Cuba was also bad for business because they kept creating conditions for revolution in Cuba. And there's obviously this desire from the business perspective to protect their interest from Spain. So they're kind of straddling the line here. And in particular, U.S. shipping businesses were pretty hard hit by revolutions in Cuba. They relied heavily on trade with Cuba. Remember, again, the majority of imports and exports in and out of Cuba were with the U.S., and these shipping companies were making money off of facilitating that trade. But they're losing business due to the conflict, and so they start pressuring Congress to do something to end the revolution. They weren't specific on what you should do. They just wanted it to end one way or another. And so U.S. sugar industries start to feel that same pain, and they start they take a different route to the same outcome, and they start pressuring the Spanish government to do the same, to end the, the conflict. So now we have a story about capitalism, U.S. capitalism, uh, lobbying both the U.S. and the Spanish government to end the war, <laughs> which obviously, you know, they're, they're not going to get it right. Um, but I think in general, despite the fact that different businesses were lobbying different governments for a resolution, all of their interests were mostly in favor of a negotiated settlement rather than a war, because war is epically bad for business. Interestingly, though, business also, you know, that interest, the capitalist interest, it inadvertently pushed the U.S. closer to war with Spain, uh, and in particular through the Panama Canal. And we talked at length about the the Panama Canal project and how the French started it and you know, how they, they couldn't get it done uh, and how the U.S. stepped in because there is a huge, huge, you know, uh, um, interest in, in joining the Pacific Ocean with the Atlantic Ocean for shipping, but also for geopolitical reasons, um, but mostly shipping. It's mostly a capitalist thing. It, it took a really, really long time to, you know, sail all the way around South America just to get to the other side. And so we heavily invested in it. And by we, I mean, you know, U.S. business interest and the U.S. government. But in order to get that done, you can't just leave that on, you can't just build a canal and leave it unguarded. And that necessitated a better U.S. Navy. So we created a better Navy. <laughs> uh, so better Navy equals new war plans because you got to have plans on how to use your new toys. And those war plans just so happen to include war with Spain. So what I think is pretty interesting about this and thinking about capitalism and its role is that it both promoted and, and pushed against the idea of war, but ultimately kind of pushed us into war. A lot of these business interests. I think it's pretty fascinating. And I think that's probably still true to today. And now we have whole business sectors devoted to war. So, <laughs> you know, there's money in it. Yeah, there's a, a lot of business interest that is uh, very interested in war. And then there's, you know, your interest that your business, it, you know, a lot of policy is just like the tale of competing business interest. Right. Um, 
you know, that's why I'm kind of confused still on China because there's like, I feel like there's diametrically opposed business interests uh, with China. Mm-hmm. Like some business favors China, some business does not favor China. So it's like this weird situation. But yeah, of course, like, you know, uh, the the Smetley, the Butler book, um, War is a Racket, the whole, the whole book is about him being a Marine and, and um, you know, mm-hmm. fighting in these wars in South America and Guatemala and uh, in Latin America, not South America, but he, and, you know, basically he says like, you know, I, I, during my career, I was basically a, um, like a thug for the banks. Like that's, you know, he just mm-hmm. writes about how, you know, his entire military career was in service of, of uh, the, the banks in New York. And um, it's it's uh, very true to this day. Right. I mean, we would probably do whole episodes comparing, you know, how the business interests, you know, prior to and during the Spanish-American War, how they had an impact on, you know, our, our ultimate end game, which was to go to war. Uh, and we can compare that probably to the business interests today with China. And I imagine we'll probably find a whole lot of parallels of, like you said, different businesses wanting policy that brings us closer to China and different businesses that want policy that goes against China. But ultimately, the biggest business interest, the war business interest, uh, probably pushing us closer and closer to it. I think that might be a fascinating episode. Maybe we'll do that one day. Yeah, but we we, we should. Yeah, that could be kind of fascinating. Um. Yeah, so kind of coming back to, to Cuban history here, one, one of the important um, reforms from that Pact of Zanjan gave uh, the ability to Cubans to leave Cuba if they chose. And it, this is kind of where the the, pol- the politicking uh, uh, comes into play and definitely where, where journalism starts to play a role. One of the most in- influential Cuban pol- uh, political activists, his name was Jose Marti, he ends up finding his way to the U.S. Um, after being exiled from Cuba twice. And he links up with a bunch of other prominent Cuban activists, and they draft what was called the Manifesto of Monte Cristi in support of another Cuban revolution. That movement was known as the Cuba Libre Movement, and they set up a junta in the U.S. Well, what's kind of important, and what we didn't touch too much on in our last episode about it, was that this junta worked directly with the media and with Washington officials, and they held a lot of fundraising uh, events to support the revolution, but also to try and smuggle weapons, which, fun fact, I think they tried it like 67 times and got it done once, which was crazy. Might got that number wrong, but I just remember that fact from the last time around. It was just hilarious. Um, So... The, this junta that they set up in the United States, they they created a lot of the propaganda um, in support of the Cuba, Cuba Libre movement. And it was kind of easy to make because, frankly, Spain was being brutal. Um, and the, the Cubans got off to a rough start um, in the war since the private weapon ownership uh, was banned since that last 10-year war. So the rebels basically engaged in these guerrilla tactics, which, again, it's just more brutality. But you, because the Cuba Libre movement primarily had a, a a foothold in American politics, it was much easier to control the narrative and say, like, oh, we're freedom fighters. You know, yeah, we're doing 
I mean, they just they didn't even talk about some of the brutal guerrilla tactics that they were utilizing um, to win their independence, right? If for, for them, they had full control over the narrative. And the successes that they started seeing using those guerrilla tactics basically put Spain in a position to really use brutal tactics. And they go, again, full extermination mode. They executed a lot of people. They did mass exile of civilians. Um, and they would kind of cordon them off in specific cities or areas. And it created these ridiculous, frankly, inhumane living conditions that that killed thousands of people. I think it was like 10% of the total population of Cuba died from that alone. And this just keeps adding you know, uh, fuel to the U.S. media machine and, and the propaganda machine that we start seeing. These aggressive Spanish tactics did slow the rebels down, but again, just like pouring gasoline on the on the flame. Now, this is where a lot of those horror stories start going around in the U.S., in, in, particularly in the U.S. media. There was a um, political speech by William McKinney, uh, and he said that the Spanish tactics was not civilized warfare, but extermination, which kind of highlights how the U.S. was thinking about the war in Cuba before we got in. Well, speaking of McKinley, it wasn't just that. It, they, the media wasn't just highlighting the atrocities in the war, but they were also, you know, for, for example, uh, the New York Journal, they would write, you know, they would write really... Um, what's the word to say this uh, very um inflammatory articles with very inflammatory headlines kind of uh um kind of baiting u.s politicians to take a certain stance type of thing so mm -hmm. uh there was there's an example of a there was a intercepted letter from a spanish minister in washington that Apparently, he was allegedly, uh, you know, saying negative things about William McKinley, and he was talking, shit. <laughs> he was talking shit. And the New York, the New York Journal, in response, there they ran a headline that just said, "Worst insult to the United States in its history." That was the, that was the headline. That's that's crazy. I mean, this this what we're talking about here that these these headlines this propaganda campaign it created a lot of popular support in the u.s in favor of the cubans and it became known later as yellow journalism um and we didn't we didn't dive too deeply into yellow journalism last time around so i wanted to expound on that a little bit um so today that that term yellow journalism is is basically it's a pejorative uh for journalism it's it's that's not actually journalism you know think like um like like BuzzFeed clickbait, you know, or news based on unconfirmed or no sources at all, what we would call like fake news today, or tabloids, just stuff that incites a visceral reaction with the reader to get more readers. And in the period leading to and during the Spanish-American War, there were, uh, and, and you pointed out one of them, but two major outlets, uh, the New York World, led by Joseph Pulitzer, yeah, the, the Pulitzer Prize guy, and um, the New York Journal, uh, led by William Randolph Hearst. And these two dudes were engaged in a kind of war of sorts between each other um, for who can get the most readers. It's kind of an interesting story. Hearst was actually Pulitzer's apprentice in his younger years. 
Uh, at 24, he gets like a like a loan from his dad's mining company, and he buys the San Francisco Examiner, and he modeled that paper after Pulitzer style. Eventually, you know, after making a name for himself, he decides to go and purchase the New York Journal uh, and come over to the East Coast, and he positions himself, you know, as his former master's competition, um, poaching a lot of Pulitzer staff along the way. And so papers from both publications, they start featuring these huge revamps of their front pages. Uh, uh, and I think, uh, I'm not a historian on, on, the, uh, on, on journalism in general, but I think this is where we start getting a lot of the uh, cues for how newspapers are made today, uh, where with like a giant front page with these bold clickbaity headlines and and this is also when they start introducing a lot of large pictures or il- illustrations. You know, by by all means, it was very revolutionary, uh, and in many ways, it 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 has shaped the landscape of our current media and, and how we you know engage how the media engages with its with its audiences. Um, one mainstay of the new form format of of journalism was the prevalence of these full color comic strips that went along with the paper. And they were often used to paint a picture of the events of the news in a way that's more digestible or funny or sometimes brash. Uh, you can think of it a lot as like the, the political cartooning of today, you know. Um, it was just an easier method to deliver a point. And one cartoon in particular uh, of the, quote, yellow kid Mickey Dugan, th- this eventually becomes the poster boy for yellow journalism. It was a, it was a cartoon of a bald-headed poor kid wearing like a yellow nightgown and it was totally in bad taste, but it caught on. Uh, and funny part about the, uh, yellow kid was that, uh, it kind of reflected the wars between Pulitzer and Hearst because Hearst originally published it, but the cartoonist never trademarked it. So Pulitzer ended up poaching him, uh, and running it on his own newspaper. So it became like a weapon, which is pretty funny. The yellow kid is of course, where we get the name yellow journalism. Um, but I want to go a little bit deeper on Hearst because while all yellow, yellow journalism of this day helped egg on the American opinion into going to war with Spain, I think his contributions were very noteworthy. Around the same time as the Cuban Revolution was gearing up and Hearst basically used it as an opportunity to win readers, right? He had just come into the New York Journal and, and you know, he needed a big win um, and the New York Journal's coverage of the rebellion was, to, to put it lightly, extremely biased. <laughs> um, and, and it had articles and cartoons and headlines, uh, you name it. And all of this was promoting the Cuban cause and called for the United States to intervene. Uh, on one story, he trumped up the involvement of this um, of the imprisonment and the eventual release of a Cuban prisoner, uh, Evangeline Cisneros where he basically bent, let's just use that word, he bent the story, uh, made it, he trumped it up, made it sound much more dramatic and much, much more heinous on the Spanish side. Um, I don't actually know the full details of that particular story, but when I was reading through it, it it, it struck me as though they basically fabricated um, the, the way that the Spanish had treated her um, to, to get the point across that the Spanish were, were evil. Um, Another uh, famous example uh, from Hearst was was uh, which something we spoke about last time um, between the illustrator Frederick uh, Remington and Hearst. So Remington was an illustrator that was hired by Hearst to go over to Cuba to cover the rebellion, and you know Hearst is over there 
bored, I guess. And he, he writes back and he says, hey, there's, there's no war to cover. And this is where we get the famous line of, of Hearst allegedly saying, oh, well, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. I do want to say allegedly because I'm not sure if that's confirmed or not, but it's pretty famous as being attributed to Hearst. It's a very, it's a very famous quote. That I think probably people have heard that before. But I guess you would call this, I think the term that they use to describe this, that academics use, is that it's... Um, self-activated journalism right or i think that may have been the way that hearst described it himself self-activated journalism so it's not that you're writing about the story it's that you're creating the story right you're not following the story you're actively creating the story part of it Mm -hmm. you're yeah you're a part of it and something that i think is kind of underestimated in this in this media revolution that's going on right now is that this is the time when they start perfecting the telegraph right. where they start really understanding how to use the telegraph and the telegraph had been around for a while, at least uh, like 30 years or so. And it's been, it was around in the civil war, but the telegraph, what they, you know, Hearst and, you know, the other media companies at the time, they really figured out how to use it and they were using it for, you know, overseas correspondence. So mm-hmm. something would happen. Let's just say that there was a, you know, massacre or, um, you know, a story comes to light. It's kind of like how Twitter is now, you know, right now with the war in Ukraine. When there's a, something happens in the war, we instantly know it. I mean, if you're following it, you instantly have footage of it. Right. Um, if someone takes a video of it, of course. But, I mean, um, that was kind of happening. Uh, this is kind of the precursor of that in the Spanish-American War where things could be transmitted at an instant and then it would be in the headline uh, of tomorrow's newspaper. Yep, and, and that was particularly um, important for the blowing up of the USS Maine, which we'll talk about in a second because, uh, and as we'll find out, that before the investigation had even been over, these journalists were already saying that they knew the answers, which is fucking wild. Um but talking about like taking an active, like the news, taking an active role in the news rather than just reporting on it, apparently Hearst went so far as to charter a yacht to Cuba uh, where he could like watch the action unfold himself. And he undoubtedly made up a bunch of bullshit because, you know, why not? It sells. And the point about all this debate about journalism's role um, in in war is, you know, to think about like what how did yellow journalism impact the ultimate, you know, decision to go to war? I mean, we already had those plans to go to war up front, you know, but you got to think about it. Like, yeah, yellow journalism sensationalized this crisis and it also helped people to get into the mindset of war with Spain by exaggerating or straight up fabricating the facts. But, you know, Yellow journalism didn't create the war, and, and it certainly didn't impact the real on-the-ground situations that led to war, which we've described at length beforehand. So I kind of pose the question back to you again, Henry. You know, after all we've learned about this, where do you think the, the role of, of yellow journalism fit in for this particular war? So we were speaking about this last time we spoke about the, the Spanish-American War, and 
I agreed with you when you said that the war was going to happen in the first place. But, I mean, the media just serves as a way to legitimize the war to the people. Sometimes those decisions are are already made by the state beforehand, but it does take the media to sell it for it to be legitimate, to be a, a legitimate war. You know, mm-hmm. if there wasn't this fervor behind it, then... Um, you know, maybe things would have been, maybe the war wouldn't have happened if there wasn't, you know, a sales pitch for it. But I mean, that's really the, the, you know, I don't think the media causes the war in these cases. I think the, you know, the, there's a policy and, and, you know, there's a natural, and, and I mean, it's not just a policy to go to war. Sometimes there's a policy that gets screw, screwed up and crazy. And then countries end up in wars that they didn't really mean to get into, but it was just kind of like the, where the destination of where their policy led them. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the media's ultimate, what it does, it just, it, it legitimizes the war to people. So it's something that, uh, that I mean, there's a certain level of, of legi- I mean, to be considered a, I don't want to say the word democracy, but to be, I guess, considered a functional state there needs to be the appearance of some type of popular you know popular support for its leaders and Mm -hmm. for its like leading class and you know if if there's no uh consensual agreement to go to war then it it seems delegitimate um so that's really the role that the media plays but i think this case is actually a little bit different than you know the modern press and you know how the modern press here's a major difference and and i think i made this point last time between now and then as far as i know and i'm not an expert on this era at all um there wasn't like well actually i think there actually was i'm I'm actually i need to correct myself because i was reading that there was kind of a collusion between the state and and the media in terms of selling a uh, selling the war because the, the I think the primary motivation for the press at this time was was to make money you know there was like a media circulation war where you know you had these two moguls who were pushing as many papers I think that was their primary motivation so I'd have to understand more about their links to the government if there was like an actual conspiracy between the uh, McKinley administration and the press to sell the war, like in Iraq, you know, in, in I, the Iraq war, there were uh, active participants in the media who were uh, like Judith Miller, for example. Mm-hmm. Judith Judith Miller was an active participant in the conspiracy to to sell the war to the government, I mean, to the people, and she was also uh, Scooter Libby's lover, and she had deep connections with the neoconservatives in, in the vice president's office. So, you know, there was an active conspiracy. They conspired to sell the war t- through the New York Times essentially. And, um, you know, here, I think there is those elements of of that here, but I would need to learn a little bit more about the specifics and and how that all went down to kind of compare it to our modern understanding of how the media sells uh, countries in the war. 
Well, I think even if there wasn't a overt or even covert conspiracy between the media and the the government to you know promote war, I think you still see elements of like there being a tangential relationship between the two. I mean, we talked about Teddy Roosevelt and and his machismo and his ideas of you know we we need a good war to you know roughen us up you know and and that that was already in the in the political zeitgeist already uh i think the media here just kind of becomes a useful tool a useful like delivery mechanism or or even um like a like a vector for uh the folks who might have had machinations about um going to war i think it's probably also important to, to think a little bit about the corporate interests right because you know going to war would impact the businesses that uh, were set up in Cuba. But at the point that we get to the USS Maine, you know, we're already very much interrupting business and shipping and and exports and things like that. So there could even have been uh, a a little bit, a little bit there, uh, at least some, some business interests in, in promoting a war. So I think whether directly related through some conspiracy uh, or not, there definitely is those ties in using media as just the the icing on the cake, so to speak, to get the deal done. And, and you're you're absolutely right. You know, we're not gonna. I don't think any any country on earth is ever gonna go to war or intervene uh, in in some some foreign escapade without at least some modicum of of popular support and best way to get that is through the media well so. here's here's the other thing I think and this is I think this is um kind of a similar theme throughout American history is that the media class and the political class and the business class are all the same people yep <laughs> so yeah. if there's an ideology that's very prevalent among them, it's usually shared among them. It's, mm-hmm. um, you know, if the the media ideology is usually very reflective of what the state's ideology is. Mm-hmm. And if it's not even, let's just say if there's not even like a lie or there's not like an active um, machination to, uh, you know, let's just say, Let's just use the example of the main. I'm not saying the main was an inside job. I don't think it was an inside job. There's enough we'll evidence. We'll, we're gonna we're gonna get to it, but I think there's enough evidence to suggest that the main um, was was actually a, like a spontaneous combustion type of thing, where you know it was a freak thing that happened. Um, there were reports. I believe it was. Um, hmm, I think it was Senator uh, Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a big backer of intervening in Cuba, um, he had wrote that, uh, I think he was writing this to, man, who the hell did he write this to? I mean, I totally forgot, but he had wrote that he was, um, that there may be an explosion any day in Cuba, which would settle a great many things. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's just kind of a weird thing that happened where, you know, he was, he was, uh, hoping that there was some type of, uh, Cassius Bella or or whatever, some type of event that would that would trigger a U.S. response, and you know we're gonna get deeper into this, but the media was happy to run and and go with the most out, most outrageous claim or the most inflammatory claim about what happened to the main to 
uh, gin up support. But uh, to pull this back and, and before I kind of lose the ultimate point, and, and the point I made in the beginning is that I think that the, you know, in, in today's society, and I think probably back in the in 1898, there is, um, you know, all these people come from the same or educated in the same places. You know, they're all educated out of Ivy League institutions. They're all in the same circles. So they all have the same uh, culture and they all have the same type of, uh, you know, political ideology and thoughts. And and uh, I think that's why the media interest also, you know, uh, often reflects the interest of uh, not only big business, but also the government, because, you know, this is just all you know, this is this is the elite class, you know, and mm-hmm. and that's just those are the thoughts that are going going uh, in these circles. For sure. And, and back in then, the thoughts that were going around in those circles was, you know, uh, it's time for global expansion. It's time to to um, we need to solidify ourselves as a nation. You know, we need to uh, kind of finally heal the wound of the Civil War and just become one nation state. And I mean, there's some f- stupid idiot weakling down the street. Why don't we kick his ass? <laughs> that was show was, uh, and that's I think kick his ass and take the, his uh, island from him, right? Let's kick that guy's. Let's just kick that guy's ass, and we can do it. Like we can kick that guy's ass. Let's do it. <laughs> and I think that was the crude way, or the the kind of the, a crude way. That's a, this is a crude way to present what the overwhelming. Uh, consensus was among the powerful in the late 1800s. For sure. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I mean, ultimately, we do go to war. And I think a lot of people um, credit, I don't know if credit's the right word here, credit the uh, the USS Maine uh, event for starting the war. And, and they're mostly right. Um so how that went down was in January 1898, excuse me, uh, the USS Maine gets sent down from Key West, Florida to Havana, Cuba uh, to, quote, protect U.S. interests during the Cuban Civil War of Independence. And 
here we know that the interests were the business interests. So there's again, you know, some confluence uh, of of capitalism or business uh, in uh, war. Three weeks later, it explodes in the Havana Harbor, and something like 251 enlisted sailors and and a couple of officers and Marines, they either get killed by the explosion or they drown. Um, and a couple of people got rescued, and some of them died uh, soon after uh, from their injuries. And, and obviously, this this event had some severe implications uh, for us getting into the war. There's no questioning that. Um, but what was what was interesting was that almost immediately, there's theories circulating around about how and why the ship uh, exploded. Now, internally, the Navy was pretty split, but they started offering um, opinions kind of preemptively while there was still an undergoing investigation. Some some people theorized it was the Spanish, uh, whether with a mine or some kind of torpedo. There was a lot of really wild theories coming out uh, before they even had any of the evidence to support it. Other people were saying it was accidental or spontaneous. Uh, and this is the coal fire argument, you know, something that ignited the, the ordinance on the ship. But... Well, it's interesting about this, and we were talking about how the Telegraph was like the Twitter of the time, and you know our favorite publishers, Pulitzer and Hearst, they obviously start formulating their own theories, and they're starting to get information on the ground right away, uh, and they'd take any of the information that they got, and they would twist it, bend it, or otherwise fake it uh, to suit whatever narrative they felt like would get them the most eyes on the page. Hearst goes so far as to uh, announce a reward of $50,000 to catch whoever did it. It was it was honestly so cringe looking. Like if you look, if you look at it now, it's clearly a stunt, you know. Um well, but it kind of works. Just just to add, just to add, so the next day the the headline from the New York Journal the following day is destruction of warship Maine was the work of an enemy. Right. So, of course, it was just like a way to catch people's eyes. Like, oh, I want $50,000, you know? I don't know how much that yeah. was in, in today's money, but it's a fucking lot of money, you know? <laughs> no matter how you look at it, yeah. you know? Um, so in an, it obviously, it took like a month before the U.S. Navy investigation was complete, but within days of the event, the media already had an answer, right? And their answer was obviously with Spain. Um, and speaking of investigations, there was a lot of them. Um, Initially, there was one commissioned by the Spanish and two commissioned by the U.S. Navy. So the Spanish inquiry, they arrive at the conclusion of that coal fire argument. They say, you know, that if it was a mine, there would have been a big column of water shooting out and they didn't find any dead fish anywhere. I'm not an expert on this, but I guess dead fish is like a sign of a mine explosion. Um, but in anyway, that, that part's not important. What is important is that the Spanish were saying like, hey, it was it was an accident on your side. We didn't do it. You know, they were actually very, um, sympathetic in, in a lot of ways that the, the folks that were on the Spanish inquiry side were, were writing a lot and corresponding a lot with the U S Navy saying like, how can we help you prove that it wasn't us? <laughs> you know, they really, really didn't want to get into, uh, you know, a fight with the U S at the time, which I think is kind of foreshadowing of, of the ultimate, you know, loss of the Spanish Navy. Well, do you know what would have prevented the war? What? An AP fact check. <laughs> yeah, if only we had AP. <laughs> if an AP. Did you hear about the fact check that, uh, about Shinzo Abe? 
where there is a fake, there's like a meme online where mm -hmm. when somebody dies, they always put on Twitter, I have, I have uh, information leading to the arrest of Hillary Clinton. Oh God, <laughs> that's a meme. <laughs> so someone had a, so yeah, that's a meme. When someone dies, they'll always be like, I have, <laughs> I have information related to the arrest of Hillary Clinton. Jesus. So someone had a fake Shinzo Avi Twitter account and wrote, I have <laughs> information that will lead to the arrest of Hillary Clinton in, in Japanese. And it's just funny. It's a funny joke. Um, I mean, it's not funny that he died, but it, you know, it is funny. It's making, wow. you know, it's funny on a take on a tragic event. So um, the AP ran a fact check on this, like very obvious joke. <laughs> Because I'm not sure if the fact checkers couldn't tell if it was a joke or if there was just enough idiots who like had, you know, seriously responded to that. Like, oh my god, she did it! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, she killed Shinzo Abe. <laughs> uh, so, but but it's just it's just funny. And then Hillary Clinton responded to it like, like oh, it's like I didn't. Like, there's a weird there's a tweet. Uh, linking me to the murder of Shinzo Abe. I just want to let everyone know that's not true. That's hilarious. Which makes me, which makes me think it is true that she responded <laughs> to that. But that is that is absolutely hilarious. Um, I mean, it kind of felt like that too, right? The, the Spanish were like, "Yo, dude, it's not me. <laughs> Please let us help you come to the conclusion that it wasn't us." Right. So in this case, the Spanish were like Hillary Clinton. <laughs> um, of course, it's kind of like it's just kind of like Saddam Hussein. It's like, oh, it's Iraq. Who did 9-11. Yeah. He was with Al Qaeda. He funded Al Qaeda. Well, obviously, in the U.S., nobody picked up the story um, that the Spanish concluded that there was a, you know. It wasn't them. <laughs> I mean, maybe some did, but definitely not, you know, Hearst or. Pulitzer. They, they weren't running that shit. Um, then there was a bunch more inquiries. So the, the, there was the first uh, naval inquiry, which was the Samson Board of Inquiry. There was a lot of controversy over this one um, because they, they had appointed uh, a bunch of junior officers to do the investigation. And there was a lot of like serious doubt that uh, like a, like an actual serious investigation was underway um, and that they were just hoping to produce an outcome that the Spanish did it rather than you know, like an accident or naval intelligence. Here, maybe there's some evidence uh, for you, Henry, of, you know, some collusion between the media and, you know, the U.S. government and policy. Um, but, I mean, there was also just a lot of um, questions about the, the legitimacy of this particular inquiry because their findings were based mostly on testimony like eyewitness testimony and not facts that were obtained by the wreck. And, you know, the, in that inquiry came to the conclusion that it was a mine, um, but they didn't directly attribute it to anyone. Notably here, they didn't say it was the Spanish. They just said it was a mine. I don't know whose mine it was, but it was a mine, right? It was a limpet uh, mine. <laughs> yeah, right. Limpet mine that traveled all the way from China. <laughs> um, and then blew up in the Suez Canal. Uh, <laughs> That's a fun. That was a fun episode, actually. Um, but yeah, so the, the, there was a second U.S. inquiry, but this didn't happen until 1911, like well after uh, the end of the war. Um, and that was the Vreeland Board of uh, Court of Inquiry, and and this uh, inquiry re-examined all of the evidence, and it also made an effort to recover the bodies and like actually look at the wreck. 
Um, but when they looked at the wreck, they actually found some new evidence that suggested that it was, in fact, in an internal explosion, not an external one. Um, but, but, you know, that, that, was, that wasn't until much later. You know, we had already finished the war by then. Um, but th we keep doing investigations on this damn thing. Uh, in 1974, there was another investigation called a Rickover investigation. That was a private one um, by a guy whose last name is Rickover. And, you know, he used a lot of the information that came from the prior two naval investigations and, and reaffirmed the spontaneous coal combustion argument. And then in 98, Nat Geo did one. And this was the first one that they used computer modeling for. Uh, but this was kind of very inconclusive. They they arrived at the conclusion that maybe it was a coal fire or maybe it was a small handmade mine. And it generally just wasn't super helpful. <laughs> um but I guess, you know, 98 computer modeling wasn't very good. Uh, they tried it again, uh, or at least the Discovery Channel did in 2002, and, and um, they end up backing the coal fire theory. But they used a lot more um, broad-based evidence, not just strictly uh, computer modeling. And, and they identified a, a weakness or a gap in the bulkhead that was separating the coal and the powder bunkers, um, which is the theory of why um, they allowed, that, that it allowed the fire to spread to to those um, munition stores. But yeah, I mean, it was shit, munted shit ton of, of investigations. I mean, I don't really know, to be honest. I, I tend to believe the, the accident one, especially because, especially because of like how the Spanish were, were like ultra sympathetic and like really trying to like fix the problem. You know, like they, they really didn't want to get into a fight. Well, I highly doubt it was the Spanish. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems Cubans. like, yeah, that's, that's, it just seems so weird that, I mean, how often is, are there spontaneous combustions, coal combustions? Like I would want to speak to like a naval expert or a coal expert. Like how often do ships explode out of nowhere? Because I think, I think the, the trouble with that, the, the trouble with that is that, well, uh, there were a bunch of investigations that I just outlined that, that came to the coal fire conclusion, right? So I, I generally tend to lean in that direction. The, the issue with, with that first naval investigation, calling it a mine was that there, there might've been a concerted effort of the Navy to cover up like negligence, right? In the way that they, um, stored their coal or, in the way that their ships were designed. Remember, these ships were relatively new, right? They had just created them to, you know, protect the Panama Canal and and, and beef up the, the U.S. Navy. That would look really bad on the U.S. Navy's part if they were building ships that just spontaneously explode, <laughs> you know? So there's obviously a, a, a little bit of a um, of a desire, at least during the during the, the crisis itself to, to come to the conclusion that no, 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 it wasn't us. That was definitely a mine. You know, our ships don't explode. I promise. <laughs> well, take into account things back then just exploded more. <laughs> yeah. Things, things were more flammable back in the day. Things were more, you know, things exploded out of nowhere back in the day. I mean, I mean, they had like a bunch it, of like varnish and shit and like other yeah. hyper flammable shit on board. So it's it's not outside the realm of possibility. That just just, just think about all the 
people like all the celebrities that died in like in uh, like hotel fires because mm-hmm. their mattress lit on fire right because they fell asleep smoking a cigarette or some shit yeah and then the, the whole the whole place just burns to the ground now you couldn't try to light your mattress on fire with a cigarette <laughs> yeah like it you just wouldn't be able, i don't think you would be able to do it but back then it would just light on flyer fire and you would die um so, going back to Hearst, um, well, I, I want to talk about McKinley a little bit because, obviously, in the context of, you know, that doesn't really matter what the investigation says, the, the media's mind is up, the public's mind is up, it was Spain who did this. There's, I don't think there's many people who are thinking, all right, let's cool it, let's not act right now. Right. And... McKinley is a guy, he's, he's a president who was a Civil War veteran. And, you know, he was at the very least aware of how brutal war could be. And he was actually hesitant. He didn't want to jump immediately into a war. and uh, But the media pressure does build up. It gets to him. And the the U.S. government basically has an ultimatum to the Spanish saying you have to give up Cuba and basically the rest of your imperial possessions in the Caribbean. And, um, of course that's not, you're not going to do that. Like Spain's not going to just give up their political possessions because the United States said so. And, um, you know, they, what's interesting about this is that he, McKinley delivered a message to Congress arguing that the U.S. must intervene in Cuba, uh, not simply as a result of the main explosion, but uh, also as a humanitarian intervention on behalf of the Cubans, uh, of the Cubans, the Cubans, the Cubans. (laughs) And what this is, is that this is the first time the U.S. threatened war on humanitarian grounds. And this is something that obviously, you know, becomes a common distinction in our foreign like policy. I feel like that's the only reason why we go to war now for humanitarian yeah. reasons. We go to war because we really, really are horrified how women are treated in Afghanistan. That's the story of every war. Yep. Women's rights in Afghanistan. Um but yeah, uh, Spain declares war on the U.S. on April twenty fourth, and then Washington declares the war uh, declares war on Spain the next day, and then the war lasts four months. Right, it's Super it's a short. it's a, a it's a one sided war. Yeah, and I think not to underscore this, I think this was already in the cards, right? Like, I think even then nobody doubted that. Um, that the U.S. would probably want a war, and and there's a lot of evidence for that. But the U.S.'s plan, at least on the Caribbean side of the war, was to destroy Spain's army forces in Cuba by capturing key ports, and in particular the the port city of Santiago de Cuba. And you know, in order to get it done, they needed to enlist the support of the Cuban rebels, uh, 
And the Cuban rebels already conveniently held the belief that the U.S. would be their key to independence, partly because they're already fed up with Spain and partly because they had a junta in the United States that was already supporting them. Um, but hindsight being 2020 here, trusting the U.S. to give them independence was about as good an idea as trusting Spain in the Pact of Zanjan or any of the other pacts that they had. But we can probably save that for another time. Um because ultimately, at the end of the war, they don't get their independence, at least not the way that they wanted it. Um, so U.S. troops began landing on in Cuba on June 10th, uh, and their initial campaign was actually met with a bunch of Spanish victories on land. Um, but the tides turn after a while you know, with the introduction of a bunch of reinforcements from the U.S. I mean, you know, the U.S. had the convenient... Um, uh, advantage of being like 90 miles from Cuba, right? So it's kind of easy to move forces over there as opposed to Spain, you know, halfway across the world. And Teddy Roosevelt, you know, he also joins in the fight, you know, specifically the the famous Rough Riders uh, that that led cavalries and, and crazy ass like um, uh, uh, skirmishers, they were called, or basically cannon fodder. Um, but they were they were lauded as as heroic. Also very interesting, there was a a, a, a lot of these uh, colored black uh, uh, soldier regiments that joined in the fight as well almost immediately because they saw the Cuban plight as as almost the same as their plight during the Civil War as well. So they, they had a lot of sympathy for, for that cause. So uh, there was actually a lot of volunteers um, to, to go to war uh, and, and seek out... Um, seek out more equality uh, through warfare, apparently. Um, also, Gatling guns, that was super useful. <laughs> uh, our regular guns uh, were actually inferior uh, in many ways to the Spanish armaments, but Gatling guns were just impressive, and we were able to get them there pretty easily. Um, but really, the, the thing that won the war for the U.S. Um, against Spain was the naval battles. Um, one battle in particular uh, on July 3rd saw the U.S. Navy destroy, like, five out of six of the Spanish ships that were in port. Um, and the last ship just straight up gave up and Spain scuttled it, um, which is crazy. In Puerto Rico, the U.S. Navy was just as effective. They they blockaded the shit out of San Juan Bay. Um, and the Spanish actually launched a pretty impressive counterattack. Uh, I believe one of their ships was called the Terror, which is crazy. But they ultimately did not succeed in that. They could not break through. And a lot of this is, is due in part to just the, the the amazing naval power that we had built up to, at least in some part, defend a canal. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, that investment paid off. And, you know, looking over the Pacific theater, we saw like an equal amount of naval victories. On May 1st, the U.S. Navy's Asiatic squadron, they actually took down the Spanish squadron in a matter of hours. So like quick cleanup of an entire fleet which is crazy. Um, interesting part about this, I found this pretty funny. The Germans were actually hoping that the U.S. would lose in uh, the Philippines so that they can go and take the Philippines after the battle. The U.S., of course, won, and they threatened uh, like military action against Germany uh, if, they, if they tried anything, and the Germans backed off, which is, I think, pretty funny. Um, Guam was also a really funny story, too. I didn't really know about this until recently. Apparently, the Spanish fleet hadn't been there in years. Uh, so the U.S. sent, um, the U.S. didn't know this, of course, at the time, but they sent over uh, the uh, cruiser USS Charleston. 
as well as a, a few other like uh, ships that were bound for um, the Philippines and they were going to have a stopover in Guam. Um, and the Charleston pulls up to the bay and fires a few rounds at an abandoned fort um, and didn't get any return fire, uh, which was strange for them. Like, why aren't they firing back? And then a little later, a couple of officials, Filipino officials, come out and they like greet the the warship and they actually thought that those shots were not like a war. They had no idea that they were at war to begin with. And they thought it was like a salute, like a, like a six gun salute or something like that. And they were, they were apologizing for not responding because they were out of gunpowder, which I think is hilarious. So taking Guam was fairly easy. Um, and you know, the, it's, it, it was the naval power that, that really got it done. And, and again, I talked a lot about the history of, of, of why we built that that naval power and and it it definitely was that that reason why we were going to win i mean of course spain being a crumbling empire as it was and fighting several wars already uh of cuban independence they definitely were a little bit uh out of stock let's say but they just weren't ready uh for what we had coming i wonder if the I wonder if there's any kind of connection between the Spanish defeat in the Spanish-American War and them staying neutral during World War One. Like, I wonder if, if, let's just say, if they were still holding on to their imperial possessions and they didn't have this really humiliating defeat, if they would have been more active in kind of like European mainland politics and would have got involved in uh in in something in in some type of I'm I'm just the, trying to th- the question would be would they be for the Axis or for the Allies? I don't know. Mostly, I mean, I would think that they would be with. I'm not sure. Probably, I mean, they were neutral. Um, yeah, but if they still had all their colonial possessions and like a a fleet worthy to fight, you know, like and they didn't crumble as an empire, like. Who they fight with or for? Yeah, I know. I have to look more into that to see what they would have, what more into Spanish policy during World War One. Um, I'm not actually that familiar with it, so that could be something in the future that we do because I actually want to do more stuff on World War One. Um, okay, so it ends. The U.S. has a bunch of colonial possessions, so we have. Uh, Puerto Rico, Philippines, America, uh, Cuba is basically kind of like a de facto type of colony sort of thing, Guam, and uh, Hawaii for good good measure. We take Hawaii at that time as well. And uh, Cuba becomes a protectorate and has the right to intervene in in Cuban affairs, and uh, that's it. That's how the u.s became an overseas empire yep and and again sad story for the cubans here right they just over like the last hundred years not maybe not hundred but shorter than that they keep backing the wrong political horse (laughs) and all they really wanted was to do their own thing and they kept they backed ferdinand they they it backfired they thought that the Spanish army would help them after they revolted against Ferdinand, it backfired. They tried to 
gain independence politically, it backfired. Um, they tried fighting some wars of independence, it backfired. They accepted peace deals with like the hopes that Spain would reform, it backfired. And then they fight one final battle against Spain and hope that the U.S. would come and save them, and it backfired. <laughs> so uh, I wonder if you can take this further. I, I'm not prepared to speak on this, but I wonder if uh, choosing communism would be considered a backfire or not. That'd be an interesting topic. Depends on who you ask, but I would say <laughs> yes. I would say, yeah, definitely did. I mean, you can't, you need to like escape from Cuba. Any place you need to escape or defect from is not great. But I mean, Cuba is also still is kind of is, is, is hit hard by uh, really global sanctions against it. So mm-hmm. doesn't really have a chance to succeed. But yeah, I guess in that context, uh, Cuba is still suffering <laughs> some some pretty bad uh, you know kind of global geopolitical uh con- like you know inflicted wounds on them so that sucks that's kind of a tragic story and yep. it seems like the the a little bit we have more insight into the I, we didn't even talk about communism and batista and 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 that part of cuban history but i think this was good context to talk about that in probably future episodes for sure yeah and i know that you had a particular interest in in thinking about like the cuban guerrilla warfare and you know how you know coveted those fighters were and how they helped train up other um other warriors around the world so oh yeah the cuban special forces were like some of the best special forces in the world the, um, the they were the guys they uh trained a lot of like the african uh, Soviet aligned like the, the Soviets would like contract them to go train other uh, juntas really so they would go they they trained the Ethiopian junta they trained the a lot of obviously armies in South America in Latin America uh, but they were they were known to be very good but yeah I wanted to do something on that in the future um, but we can we can talk about that. Should we dive into, I mean, we don't obviously have time to jump into the Philippines, too. That's something that kind of needs more light, uh, you know, the the kind of uh, the war in the Philippines lasted longer than the actual Spanish-American war, putting down the insurrection mm-hmm. or the rebellion in, in the Philippines. But, I mean, that what we're going to have to save save uh, time for that. But I guess to make a long story short, it was pretty brutal suppression of uh of a, an indigenous kind of rebellion um it was i guess successful in the u.s standards but at, at the cost of you know having uh you know uh countrywide uh curfews and things like that and a lot of people were obviously killed but we can talk we can put a pen in that and talk about these topics in future episodes yep Sounds good. Um, all right. All right. Listening to another episode of Bro History, it means a lot that you guys uh, continue to listen to this show. If you want to support the show, rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. 
make sure that you rate and review the podcast. It would actually be very beneficial because we are having an episode where we go over our reviews. So make sure that you, uh, you know, rate this podcast. It is the number one way to help us get it ranked, help us out. It helps us out with our SEO. It is really the number one way that you can support our show, leaving us a good rating on your Apple device if you're listening or on Spotify. Rate us, please. It really does help. And then if you also uh, want to support us on Patreon, it's it's uh, the link is in the description. It's uh, Patreon slash Bro History. You get access to our Slack channel. And uh, Danny, anything else to add? Oh, man. Looking forward to episode 250. Let's hear what you guys have to say. All right. Peace, guys. Peace. Spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and more time actually watching and playing what you want with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts.